Welcome to Episode 9 of South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 18, Aram's Inlet, February 22, 2305. Are we going to put the boats back over the side or what? Tony shouted. Jake Sampson looked down from the cab of the crane and shook his head before killing the engine. He clambered down to where Tony stood, shivering in the wind. Sorry, Tony, he said, as he got close to the ground. It's just too windy. Trust me, you do not want these boats swinging in the breeze when you're trying to put them in the water. Tony sighed in frustration. Sorry, Jake, he said, clapping the burly dock manager on the shoulder. Not your fault. Maybe tomorrow. Now the wind should die down around sunset, Tony. If it does, I'll slip a couple in then, he promised. If the front goes through tonight, it'll be good tomorrow. Thanks, Jake, Tony said, and headed off to brief Jimmy. He didn't have far to go, because as he headed back to Keyside, he met Jimmy coming to find him. No luck in the wind, huh? Jimmy said as they neared. Tony shook his head. Jake says he doesn't dare risk it. Well, good for Jake, Jimmy said sincerely. Another day isn't going to matter, and we can't afford to bang up a boat trying to hurry. He grimaced then and added, We need to stem this tide of people leaving, Tony. Tony pointed out, It's hardly a tide, Jimmy. Onesies, twosies. Most accompany clerical people and low-level service support. We need those people, Tony. If we're going to be able to even meet last year's landings, let alone this, Jimmy pointed out. The market's been pretty stable all winter, but they're just waiting to see what we do. If we don't have something reasonable in landings, the price is going to freefall, and the board will have no choice but to cut us loose. Some of them we can work around. The landings are what's reported, but we need crews for these boats or we're screwed. Yeah, I know, but so far none of the crews have left, Tony pointed out. No, but we lose many more support people and we'll have to bring some of the crews ashore just to keep the lights on. Why keep the lights on, Tony asked. Louise can answer the phone. What else is there if we're all out fishing? Jimmy ran his hand over his face and back over his skull as he thought about it. You're right, he said, finally. It doesn't matter. I just hope the news doesn't pick up people leaving and blow it out of proportion. Tony said, come on, let's get out of the wind at least. I'm freezing, and we can think at Barney's better than we can freezing our butt cheeks off out here. He turned and headed for Barney's without waiting to see if his boss would follow. He did. There just wasn't that much else to do until the boats got in the water. How sure are we that they're not going to fire us all at the end of the season, Jimmy asked Tony as they walked. Tony shot him a startled look. That would make no sense, he said. What if it makes sense and we just can't see how, Tony pressed. Boss, you've been hunting that hound for weeks now. Jimmy grinned ruefully. Yeah, I know, but I keep coming back to it. Yeah, I know, Tony grinned back, but what else is there? It's a good, solid operation, or would be if they'd stop manipulating the market. We all know that. Yeah, but perception's reality, Tony. You know that, too. The rate on our loans this last quarter went up a half a point, Jimmy pointed out. That's not because they don't like us. We've always paid back the seed money. Tony sighed, and they fought the wind all the way down East Birch to get to the beanery. Any word from Andrew, he asked hopefully, but knowing the answer. He's still looking, but he hasn't been able to spot it, Jimmy said, through a jaw held rigid to keep from chattering. It can't be shyster shyster and Shylock directly. If word got out that they were selling clients down the river, they'd be out of business so fast it would make your noggin nobble. Tony sighed in agreement. That was the one weak link in their chain of logic until they found out who was behind the manipulation. It was all just speculation. I did get one bit of interesting news, Jimmy said, as they made it into the beanery and shouldered through the door and into the warm, aromatic interior. What's that? Tony said. The old man's coming. What? When? Middle of March, Jimmy replied with a little grin. 
He's in system? Well, he'd almost have to be, Jimmy said. How could you not know? Tony asked. Well, why would I? He doesn't answer to me, Jimmy grinned. I got a message from home office routed through Dunsany. It arrived this morning. What'd he say? Beware the Ides of March. Tony stopped and stared, but Jimmy laughed, sliding into a booth. Sit down, I'll buy you coffee. The beanery was quiet mid-afternoon, too late for the lunch rush and too early for the after-work crowd. Not that evenings were terribly busy. Coffee shops being what they are, Barney's tended to an earlier crowd. Barney himself drew the steaming mugs and put them on the table before disappearing discreetly back to where he was doing something behind the counter. What the hell does that mean? Tony finally asked. Beware the Ides of March. It's Shakespeare, Jimmy said. The old man loves that stuff. It's the 15th of the month. That's when he's due. But how do you know he's coming? That could be just anything, couldn't it? Tony argued. Jimmy smiled and shook his head. Nope, family code. Tony shook his head. You know, I was thinking you were kidding about the family encryption thing. Jimmy shook his head back. We're scattered across three sectors. We have to be careful. Tony marveled, even while he admired the paranoia that caused these people to actually set up a family code. You're something, Jimmy. It's the old man. He takes his Shakespeare seriously. Tony looked quizzical, but Jimmy just waved it off. So he'll be here in about three weeks. What do we have? Jimmy asked. Not a lot. We think we know what we're doing. We don't have a clue how they think we're going to get away with it, not once the old man sees the quotas. You think that's going to matter? Jimmy asked quietly. Tony froze in his seat. But the quotas are impossible. Nobody can make them. Jimmy nodded in agreement. But it's not the old man's call, he said. The reality smacked into Tony. The board of directors of the Combine? Yep. While he's on the board, he's not the chairman of it. Well, surely he can tell them what's going on. Jimmy nodded. Yes, he can, and probably will, but the next meeting is in November. If that's too late, Tony exclaimed softly. Jimmy nodded again. Unless he can convince a quorum of the board to meet under special circumstances, there's nothing he can do to change the landings quota. Why is he coming? Tony asked. I don't really know, Jimmy admitted. They sipped a strong coffee for a few ticks, and then they added, maybe he wants to go fishing. Tony subsided into his seat, clearly not happy. Cheer up, Jimmy said. We still got jobs till October anyway. A lot can happen between now and then. Tony sighed. Well, let's hope the old man can pull a rabbit out of his hat here because I haven't a clue. Jimmy changed the subject. How's the boat coming? Jake say anything? Yeah, he gave you top priority on refit. It's good to be the king, Jimmy said. Actually, what he said was, that was a brand new boat and that bastard better not have messed it up too badly. Tony chuckled. Jimmy chuckled, too. Well, that works. So long as we get out of here as soon as the weather breaks. Meteorology says we should be clear for the season by the 1st of March, barring some late storms. It's going to be cold out there. Oh, yes, it is, Jimmy agreed. But the sooner we start, the less behind we'll be, and the more time we get before they pull a trigger on whatever deal they got cooking. You think they're waiting for a price point? Tony asked curiously. Shrugging, Jimmy replied, I don't know, could be. Could be a date. Could be something we don't know about, something in their business. He sipped his coffee. It has to be before the end of the season, though. Tony grimaced. True, he said. Once we're all fired, there's no population. They won't want that to happen. Jimmy grunted his agreement. I guess it'll come, whatever it is, around midsummer. Far enough into the season that the markets will be turning themselves inside out. Not so late that too many people bail. What'll happen to you if the combine gets bought up? Jimmy shrugged. You know, I haven't really thought of that. I suppose Angela has room for another skipper over number. Jimmy grinned. Maybe I'll move up to the home office. Tony snorted. In a pig's eye. You love it out here too much. 
Jimmy shrugged again, but with a twinkle in his eye. I don't know, Tony. That's what they used to say about the old man, too. Tony snickered. That'll be the day when Jimmy Pirano moves off the ocean. Maybe I'll just move the office, Jimmy teased over the rim of his mug. Angela says Umber is nice. Tony almost took it at face value, but then he spotted the glint in Jimmy's eye. He snorted again. So how far down do you think the combine chairs will go? Jimmy shook his head and shrugged. Dunno. Depends on how it's played in the media. Once the markets get that downward spiral going, it's going to be hard to reverse. Tony had to agree with that, and he nodded before draining his mug. How many shares you got? Jimmy shrugged. I don't know. They're in a blind trust to avoid conflict of interest. It wasn't much. A few thousand. Who's managing the trust? Tony asked warily. Not them, Jimmy said with a laugh. The old man has a separate set of lawyers that handle that for company officers like me. You trust them? Only as long as I pay them, Jimmy said. They make a good living from keeping me out of court. I can't see them messing that up. That's what we thought about Shyster Shyster and Shylock, too, Tony pointed out. Jimmy sighed and finished his coffee as well. True, he said thoughtfully. True. I just can't help thinking we're on the wrong track. This makes no sense. Whatever else may be true, the money-grubbing bastards are rational to the eye teeth. There's something we're missing, and when we find it, I'm afraid we're going to get hammered by it. Chapter 19, Callum's Cove, February 24, 2305. The village seemed like it had suddenly awakened. One day the place was boarded up, locked down, seemingly abandoned, unless you knew where to look. The next day it was a squall of activity as people began to prepare for the long fishing season. When the word had come from the inlet that the season would be getting underway as soon as the Met Office gave its blessing, the village erupted. Fishermen checked hulls and looked for winter damage. The resilient ferroceramic hulls didn't damage easily, but it paid to examine them while they were out of the water. Marine growth tended not to latch on to the smooth material, however, so there was little to look at or repair. Some of the older vessels needed some fittings replaced, and several needed the shaft housings repacked so that water wouldn't leak in around the heavy drive shafts to turn the props. For the last two weeks, both his father and mother had been working on their respective boats in preparation for launch day, and Otto wandered into the village to watch as one by one the boats shed their winter cocoons and the grav cradles were towed to the crane. Gently, Sally Wilson lifted each one from the cradle, lowered it alongside the pier. Waiting crews walked the boats down the quay, drawing them along by their mooring lines and tied them off along the piers and jetties. Most of the twenty-odd vessels were moored side by side, two and three deep along the piers. It wasn't clear to him who got to be near the outer edge and who was close in. In the long run, I suppose it doesn't matter, he said to himself. The watery sun was still low in the sky even at noon, and a shallow cloud layer made the light even weaker, but the back of winter was broken. According to the company forecasters, the last of the big winter storms was largely gone. While temperatures were still relatively cold, it was warm enough that boatmen could get their boats over the side and start the process of setting them up for another season of fishing. Otto, his mother called to him as he stood looking over the fleet, assembling by bits and pieces before him. He turned to see her stepping off one of the boats and onto the pier. Your father should be about ready for lunch, too. Shall we treat ourselves to one of Rosie's chowders? She asked, with a windblown smile. Are you okay, hon? His mother asked as she walked up almost to him. Otto knew she looked at him differently now. He thought it had to do with his deepening voice. It only cracked occasionally now. Oh, yeah, he replied, just a little dazed by all this. Every year it seems more frantic. She chuckled. Actually, every year it's about the same. You're just more aware of it this year because of your father and me, she pointed out. 
Probably so, he said, distractedly. Actually, would it be okay if I went back to the cottage and had lunch? He asked. Motherly instincts kicked in full strength, and she asked, Are you sure you're okay? Yes, Mother, it's just that all the hustle and bustle. Everybody's going to want to eat and get back to work, and none of you needs a kid underfoot. Rachel looked carefully at her son. He'd always seemed a bit strange, but she wasn't sure how a shaman's son was supposed to behave. The shark he'd carved was frightening for all its crudeness in execution, or perhaps because of it. She knew he'd carved several more figures, each in the same style, and kept them in a drawer in the shop. The walking stick he always had with him it was like something out of a tail. He took it everywhere, and it rattled and clinked with every step. She wondered how he could stand it sometimes, but he never gave any indication that he heard it. Every day he grew a little more strange, a little more different. He'd been correct, of course, the day he'd mentioned Eloise. She'd gone shopping for something nice to wear for her husband. She was a little embarrassed that the whole town was looking for her when she returned with new lingerie. The note she'd left on the kitchen table had blown onto the floor, where it was overlooked by all the people who were trying to find her and were assuming the worst. Still, how had he known? Of course, hon. You won't be underfoot, she said, but if you want to go home, that's fine. He nodded several times and turned to look out over the assembled boats. Yes. Thank you. You'll be careful, and I'll see you at supper. Would you like some muda? he asked. Well, that would be lovely, she said, still not sure who this person was that she was talking to, but working hard not to scare him or herself too badly. Good, he said, in a tone that meant agreement and not judgment. Without speaking again, he turned, and with his rattling staff in hand, walked sedately down the lane and out toward their cottage. Rachel watched him go, and was so absorbed she didn't even notice when Richard came up behind her until he spoke. Otto's going home, he asked. Yes, Rachel said distractedly. He seemed a bit overwhelmed by all the activity. There was a trace of concern in her voice, but Richard didn't pick up on it. I can't say as I blame him, he said instead. After a whole winter of being quiet, this is a lot to take in. Rachel had to agree with that statement, so she just smiled and said, Okay, big fella, buy a lady some lunch. Richard smiled at her and offered his arm. I'd be delighted, he said, with grave courtesy. They both chuckled a little, but neither said much more as they trailed their son by a few meters and each watched him, thinking their own thoughts, until they got to the diner and found a narrow table at which to sit. For his part, Otto was aware of his parents trailing him and could feel the pressure of their gaze on him. He was growing used to the odd looks as he moved about the village. On the one hand, he felt normal. He felt like he'd always felt, except when he thought back to the time when, for example, he took that flat of bellfish from red-green and walked him home along this very track the previous fall. When he thought of that day, memory showed him a different Otto, one he could scarcely believe was himself, yet inevitably was. Back then he thought being a shaman was optional. Back then the bits of stick and shell were just things lying on the beach. Back then he didn't carve things that made his own hair stand on end or hear voices tantalizingly out of reach in the wind. He sighed quietly and listened to the wind and movement to jingle the shells on his walking stick as he continued on the path to the cottage. Once home, he fixed himself a sandwich and a cup of tea, which he took out to the shop. More and more these days, he felt more at home in the shop, what had once been his father's exclusive lair, into which he was periodically invited, was now a place where he was expected to be. He sighed again and looked at the work that his father had him doing. Otto, he'd said, kindly, but a bit condescendingly, you need to control your knife better if you're going to carve Welkies. It's just a matter of practice time and a few simple techniques. 
With that, his father had proceeded to instruct him in the proper way to carve. Otto had been delighted at first. His father, the master carver, was going to show him how to find the animals in the blocks of wood. The reality soon set in as he was set to carving linked chains, balls and cages, and other kinds of exercises that took a long time and produced nothing with a sense of power or majesty or awe or reality or unreality or whatever that quality was of even his crudely carved shark. He learned to control his blade over the long weeks of winter. He could shave, slice, and notch. His inlay work was improving, as his father had him practice, by setting dark woods into light, and vice versa. The result of these long hours of practice were strewn across the top of the bench. Each showed progress in the techniques that his father was teaching him. Each was smoothly formed, cleanly executed, and dead as the wood from which it was carved. He sighed again and opened the drawer in which he kept the work he cared about. In it were a half-dozen pieces, each as darkly primitive as the shark he'd done for his mother. Each carried that ineffable something that gave it its life. None of them had his father's smooth lines, clean carving, or likely approval. Otto was confused by this disconnect. Oh, sure, he could carve like his father. He had a bench full of dead things to prove it. But something else happened when he carved these, when he freed these animals from the wood and gave them their bits of shell as heart. He sighed once more, taking a large bite from his sandwich, laid it on the bench, and turned to light the stove. He'd built the fire many, many times, and the process had become automatic. A few shavings, some small sticks, a flick of the electronic match, and the shavings almost always caught. He gave them a few minutes to breathe and catch well before adding a few more sticks. His father kept a small log end and a sharp hatchet for slivering off some lighter bits of kindling for this delicate part of the task, so there's never any lack of fuel. He smelled the smoke and smiled in satisfaction as the small flames grew into a real fire. He added some of the light sticks and put a larger one on the top of the pile to catch. He stood up from his crouch and closed the fire door carefully, and as he did so, he caught a glimpse of the carving that his father had started the night before. Otto didn't really pay that much attention to what his father was carving. He was too intent on seeing what he was carving to pay attention to somebody else's work. In the cold light of the chilly afternoon, though, Otto saw that his father had a smoothly shaped dolphin emerging from a nicely knotted bit of wood. He also saw that his father was carving the dolphin across the body of some other animal, a bear or a dog perhaps, that was caught in the wood, and that in carving the head and front part of the dolphin out, he'd carved the head off the other creature. He felt his gorge rise at the sight and managed to get outside before throwing up what little lunch he'd had on the ground behind the woodpile. Thanks for listening to South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from Wish by Rafael Garcia Perdigon. Available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the golden age, visit www.durandus.org golden.